Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake. Of mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So that crowd or the crowd answered him, We have heard from the Lord that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Well, brethren, we've been working our way through this 12th chapter, but in particular through the three statements that are there before us in John chapter 12, verse 31 through 33. And we've been here a few weeks. In fact, this is the fourth week, and I intend to bring that little segment, that little section to a close at the end of the sermon today. And we know that within those few words that the Lord speaks in those two or three verses are purposes or purpose statements that he's making to the people that is before him. That these are the, the purposes or the results or the outcomes, you might say, that he would accomplish in his death. And his death is only days away as he speaks to this now massive crowd before him here in Jerusalem said it before and it's worth saying again that at the beginning of this week beloved the massive crowd had come and and come and flocked down with Christ as he came over the Mount of Olives from being there in Bethany there's many that came with him and many that came out of Jerusalem to meet our Lord because they wanted to coronate him as king that many of the locals would come from all over the world at that point to come to the time of Passover there in Jerusalem where the city's population swells to the max. They are before the Lord and the city is growing day by day with people and the more and more people who are before our Lord listening to every word that comes from the mouth of the Messiah. Every word. They were deeply excited They were deeply enamored. You could say they were obsessed with Christ at one point at the beginning of the week. And that excitement was completely overwhelming for the most part of who were there there in Jerusalem. 
At the top of their voices, they declared that this is our messianic king. Our king has come. That was the collective chant of those before our Lord. But as the days progressed, and with every word that came out of his mouth, it seems as we read through the text that the excitement among the crowd had begun to diminish more and more as it became more and more apparent that this Jesus is not what they anticipated him to be. The straw, I believe, that broke the camel's back in the minds of these Jews is the last of the three statements that our Lord makes from verse 31 through 33. There it reads, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see, now it's crystal clear for the audience. Now they know that Jesus has come to die. Now, brethren, before I move on, I think it's critically important that we reminded once again of the context that is before us because we need to understand the context to some degree to understand the third statement that comes from the mouth of our Lord. Beyond the fact that he's there in Jerusalem, beyond the fact that there are people everywhere and there's the bustling city that, that is at the time of Passover, I'm talking about the immediate context that we must keep in mind as we approach the third of the statements that Jesus makes. I'm talking about what takes place in verses 20 through 21 in this chapter. The very words that have launched uh, the the teaching or the doctrines of our Lord in this chapter. This is what takes place from verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Greeks, Gentiles, they've come to Jerusalem and their intention is to have an interview with Jesus Christ. Now exactly, we can't be definitive exactly what the Greeks wanted and why they wanted this interview with Jesus. What is exactly on their mind? We're not exactly told in the text, but no doubt they had some questions on their minds. And if you remember, when I approached this text and unpacked it for us a few months back, I said that it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to assume that it had something to do with the chants they were likely hearing in the background. You remember? When the chanting was going on, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Having come to to celebrate or to worship at Passover would suggest that these Greeks, these Gentiles, at least had some understanding of Scripture. After all, they'd abandoned, likely they'd abandoned the the false pagan gods that they once worshipped to now worship the only true God, the, the God of Israel here. And they've come to Jerusalem to partake in one of the commanded festivals, the Passover. Now, hearing the multitude thundering in the background, Hosanna, this is our king. They may have been keen to ask, Jesus, Jesus, is there a place for Gentiles like us in your kingdom? You've come to establish the Messianic king. We know, is there a place for Gentiles like us in this kingdom? 
We, we can't be sure, as I said. But I think that's exactly what's going on here. Neither can we be sure if Jesus granted that request anyway. Do you see them? Do you sit down with them? To have a chat with them. We, we're not told. According to the text that is recorded for us, we're not told. In fact, according to the text, it may seem like Jesus actually ignored them altogether. As though the matter with the Greeks was yet unresolved. Perhaps. Until now. Because with that in mind, I want us to walk through the second clause of the third statement from the lips of our Lord. When he says... And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Last week I unpacked for us the first clause in that statement. You remember the first part. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth. Back then I said there was two basic truths that are found in that statement. The first is Christ's death is in view. He's making it very clear. I've come to die. The death of our Lord is in view. It is necessary that Jesus lay down his life and he's making it known to all the crowd, to all that are before him. He made it known very explicitly to his disciples on many points, alluded to the crowds. But now Jesus is being crystal clear because the hour has come for him to be glorified. First, the death of Christ is in view. Second, the type of death that he will die. He was making it clear in this statement, the type of death that he will die, that he will be lifted up. Last week I said that means to be crucified, it means to be hung upon the tree. And if your memory serves you well, you'd remember I brought to the table the same or similar language that we find in John chapter 3, referring to another incident that took place some 1500 years ago that Jesus referenced. You remember that incident that took place in Numbers chapter 21 when the children of Israel had been rescued from the land of Egypt under the bondage under the Pharaoh. And now they're in the wilderness. They begin to grumble and moan and complain and God has had enough. So he sent among them a plague of deadly serpents. And these serpents, they were happy to bite. And their venom was deadly. The people began to drop everywhere dead because the venom was deadly and there was no remedy. Helpless and hopeless are the two words I can think of that describe that state. But the Lord had mercy upon them. By way of a mediator, Moses, he provided a remedy. A bronze serpent was to be made and erected on a pole and then lifted up in the wilderness for all to behold, to look upon the provision of God and live. To look upon the provision of God and live. That's the analogy that Christ draws to himself when he says, Likewise, speaking of the bronze serpent, likewise the Son of Man will be lifted up so that whoever believes upon him will have eternal life. But Christ is saying that I'm not exactly the same. There's an analogy that I can draw from that. Uh, the remedy, I'm not the remedy for a mere physical condition. As the fatality that would be brought upon by the deadly venom of the snakes in the wilderness. But, but rather, Jesus is saying that I, I, I've been come, I've been sent by the Father. I'm the provision of God to be the remedy of a spiritual condition. To save people. To save sinners from the perpetual destruction of the second death. From the fatal Venom 
that is coursing through the veins of all who are born in Adam. Jesus has come as the remedy to that deadly condition called sin. Likewise, the lifted up Saviour is in view here in John chapter 12. And he's drawing people unto himself in his crucifixion, in him being lifted up. Now, let me begin in the latter part of the second clause of the third statement. That's confusing to you. I hope it isn't. It was to me. So but let me just say, I'm going to start at the end first, and then I'm going to hit the beginning. Because first, before I, before I address what drawing unto the Lord and the nuances of that statement means, I, I need to clear up what the Lord means by all people in that statement. All people are being drawn by the Lord. I'm not going to spend much time here because, because I've, I've spent quite a bit of time or extensive amount of time uh, teaching on the, the principle behind it as we work our way through the gospel according to John. But I need to make it clear here that what Jesus is speaking about. Firstly, let me put this on the table. First, I want us to dismiss the thought that the drawing that Jesus is drawing the people unto himself, that the drawing is just physically speaking about a, a physical phenomenon. That there's a physical activity. In other words, Jesus will be this spectacle in a few days' time. He'll be hung upon the cross. He'll be lifted up. He'll be crucified. And this multitude that have come to Jerusalem from all over the world will now be drawn to Calvary's cross to look upon him. And that's it. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. It's beyond the exhibition. It's beyond the spectacle that Jesus is speaking about. He's speaking about some very profound spiritual truths in these words. And the drawing unto himself is a drawing in the way that he makes people know that he's the way and he's the truth and that he is the life. The drawing unto himself, as I will show shortly, is salvific. In other words, it's a drawing unto salvation. Salvation is in view here in the words of our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, I hope once I've said that, and I'll prove it shortly. I hope now that you know that the drawing is salvation, it's salvific. Hope right now it's starting to ring in your minds how critically important it is to define what all people mean in this statement. Because if salvation is in view... You could quite easily fall into universalism. You could quite easily fall into that doctrine, which is heresy, that suggests or, or teaches that when it's all said and done, everyone's going to be saved and everyone's going to enjoy the bliss of heaven. Not true. Not true. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, our Lord says. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. He goes on and he says, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. These are sobering words. The word of the Lord is so clear, beloved. In fact, it's terrifying. Because what he's saying here is that many, most, will end up in hell. The lake of fire, 
Jehennam, Jehennam, if you want to pronounce it that way. The place that our Lord describes in Matthew chapter 25 as the place of eternal torment, the place of eternal punishment. Universalism is absolute heresy. It goes against the teaching of Scripture. In fact, the most well-known verse that the world knows refutes it outright. You remember John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. For what reason? That whoever believes, that whoever believes in him shall not what? Is perishing an option? Yes, it is for those who don't believe. But for those who do believe, they will enjoy eternal life. Faith is required for salvation. It is clear. That's the testimony of Scripture. And not all will be saved. Since then, universalism is a heresy. We know that. That's the testimony of Scripture. And many must and will end up in hell. And we also know, throw this into the equation, I'll prove it shortly, that Jesus is drawing, or his drawing is salvific, is unto salvation then we must ask the question, how do we understand all people? In verse 32. And since the Lord is, or the Lord's word is consistent, there is no contradictions, then all people, beloved, let me put this to you, all people, all people, all people cannot be all without exception. It cannot, it cannot, it goes against Scripture. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's not all people without exception. And the key to understand what Jesus is saying is, I believe, the context that pertains once again to what I, what I illuminated for you or emphasized, better word, for you at the beginning, the Greeks who had come to Jerusalem. I believe they're the key to understanding the all people that are spoken of here in verse 32, that the Jews, the Jews wanted a messianic king to rule and to govern and to reign over Israel. That's what the Jews wanted. That's what they were celebrating. The Messianic King has come. Finally, you'll sit on the throne of David and you'll make us the privileged people that we are. We regain our land and our authority and our autonomy. That's what we want. But the Messiah promised in Scripture, the Messiah promised from the loins of Abraham, although he will come through that lineage, is a Messiah that will be a light and a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That's the promise of God in the Old Covenant. The promise was to go beyond the physical seed of Abraham. The Greeks were in Jerusalem and possibly thinking, as I said earlier, do we have a place in the kingdom of God in this new covenant? The Messianic king has come to establish a kingdom. Have we got a place as Gentiles in that kingdom? There was provision in the Old Testament law for Gentiles, for proselytes, those who had come and converted to Judaism, but they never were fully fledged. Jews. They never were. They never were able to, to fully enjoy the privileges of the Jews. That was for those who had the lineage, the blood lineage of Abraham. They've always felt to some degree second rate. But how about now? How about now? But now, beloved, in the new covenant that is ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ, not of oxen, but the blood of Jesus Christ, we're told he will draw all people to himself, not all people without exception, but all people without distinction. Actually, he's already taught this fact. In chapter 10, when he says, 
that he'll call his sheep. You remember the, the shepherd sheep analogy back a couple of chapters. He said he'll call his sheep from all over the world. He'll bring them from different pens, sheep pens from all over the world. But when he does, what is he going to do with them? What's Jesus going to do with his sheep that he calls individually, one by one by another? He'll bring them all into one pen. And there will be one shepherd over them. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is not only for the Jews. The kingdom of God is for the Jews and the Gentiles. The provision that God has given through his son and his son, a lifted up savior who will bleed and die upon the cross. It's a provision not simply for the sin of Israel. Jesus Christ is the provision of God for all who are in the loins of Adam. He hasn't come to deal simply with the sin of Israel, but he come to deal with the sin of Adam. This is why he's called the last Adam. He's come to deal with the sins of the world. All people, whether Jew or Gentile, beloved, have been provided one and only one Savior, Jesus Christ. The Samaritans in chapter 4 got it right. This Jesus is the Savior of the world. The Apostle Paul says it best in Galatians chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to, not the physical seed of Abraham. Heirs according to promise. So now our Lord is saying that at the cross... He'll draw people from every tribe, from every nation, from every people, from every language unto himself. When he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people. So all peoples from all nations unto, unto myself. I will draw them, he says. I will draw them. I will draw. You see, the original word now moving on to draw is helco. And that's an interesting word. Translated draw here before us in the text, it's actually only used eight times throughout the New Testament, and five of those eight is here in the gospel according to John. Oh, sorry. I think we've got some technical difficulties. According, according to John, I'll just raise my voice. The Lord has gifted me with a shouting voice, so I don't mind. But let me tell you, the way the word is used in every single occasion throughout the New Testament, it actually connotes a type of forcefulness, even you may say violence. That's the word that, that is connoted or the meaning that is connoted in the word draw. It's invasive if you're thinking, beloved, that Christ is wooing people to consider him when he says, I draw people to myself, then you need to think again. Because if Helco is not translated draw as it is in front of us, that I will draw all people to myself. If it's not translated draw, it's always translated, here this, either haul or drag. Drag. Peter dragged the net full of fish in John 21. Did the fish come willing? I'll explain this later. 
Paul and Silas, in Acts chapter 16, they were seized and they were helco, dragged before the rulers in Philippi. Were they willing? And in James chapter 2, James chapter 2, when, when James is speaking to the church, he says, is it not the rich that drag the poor into the courts? I'll give you other examples, but I think you see the point. Drawing or dragging is always done by a more powerful entity. Hear this. And in every occasion, in every case that we have in the New Testament, the one being drawn may resist, but he or she is powerless to stop the process. You may resist, but he or she is powerless to stop the process. This is just part of what I want to say. I'm going to explain it a little bit further, so bear with me, beloved. One being drawn will necessarily come, even though he or she does not desire to come in the first place. In the first place is the key. Okay, so if all people are drawn to Christ, they're dragged to the crucified Saviour, then what? I've said before that Christ is the provision of God for salvation, and that is true, but the scripture is clear. Repentance and faith are necessary. They're a requirement for salvation. So what if the people are drawn to Christ, but still don't believe? What good is that? Taking our minds back a few thousand years to the example that the Lord gave to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you know, that example, Numbers 21, with all the deadly serpents that were sent by God as a plague. Let's take our minds back to that. The plague had come and is biting people, the children of Israel. They're dropping dead all over the wilderness. Now, let's assume for a moment, godly men who have who've had their eyes opened by the glories and the truth of God come and see those who are ailing and, and, and in pain and, and have been bitten by snakes. And they come and they grab them, they apprehend them and they drag them along and they say, you're coming with me. I'm going to take you to that hill. Where that bronze serpent has been erected, where that bronze serpent is lifted up, I want to take you there to the provision of God for healing, to remedy this problem. I'm going to take you there so that you can trust in the provision of God to look and live, we're told. What if the infected refuse to look? What if they refuse to be healed? Brother, that's crazy, you might say. Of course, they want nothing more than to be healed. Nothing more than to be healed. If they have the venom of of deadly serpents running, coursing through their veins, they want nothing more than to get better. Surely. Really? Has that been your experience? When sharing the good news of the gospel, when sharing the remedy, the provision of God for the deadliest of venom that's running through every single human, man, woman and child, everyone in Adam who is ailing under the condition of sin and it's deadly and there is no remedy. When you proclaim to them and share with them the wonders of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, has it been your experience that they've been head over heels in thanking you because you've given them the remedy 
When you shared the gospel with friends and family, unbelieving family, even those on the streets, have they been overly excited to hear it? Or has it been the opposite? This is where the analogy with the bronze serpent breaks down. You see, when Jesus gives an analogy, a metaphor, when Jesus even speaks in parables, we're not to take every single element and link it to something. We need to see what Jesus is saying. And in the context, when he speaks about the bronze serpent that is held up and erected or lifted up in the wilderness, the the analogy, the link that Jesus wants to make is this. That is God's provision. God's mercy to those people is provided for them. He's provided for them a remedy to fulfill their great need. And that is that they would look and behold what God has provided and they will no longer die, but they will live physically speaking. So Jesus is referring back to himself and saying, I am the provision of God. I have been brought by God to to remedy this deadly disease in sin that is in everyone. But it is the greatest need. And it's not the physical need, but it's a spiritual one. That you would have spiritual life. That you would no longer be dead in your transgressions and sins. But if you look and behold the Son, the provision of God through His Son, then you shall live. That's the analogy. That's the link that Jesus is trying to refer or to link to the the analogy that He gave with the story in the wilderness. But beloved, if we dig a little further we'll start to see that although God is graciously providing the remedy in both, there is a major difference in detail. The serpent in the wilderness resulted in pain, in agony. Those bitten were actually visibly miserable. They desired to be healed. They knew they were going to die. The result of what the serpent did in the garden that deceived Eve and caused Adam, the federal head of humanity, to fall and to be infected by sin and infect humanity because all are in Adam into this universal disease called sin. Unlike those who are bitten in the wilderness, the natural man is infected, but he's not in any pain. He's not in agony. He is, or she is, so deceived, so blind, so immersed in the pitch darkness that they don't even perceive that they are, that they are in peril. The heinous truth about the natural man, beloved, is that he or she loves their sin. They love the fallen world and everything that the world can give. Everything that the world can give. Is the, is the desire of their heart. This is where they want to be. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is bliss. They love the darkness, and therefore they hate the light. John chapter 3, you remember that. The fallen man is where he desires to be. Darkness, depravity, sin, home, sweet home. And even the general light that is being given to mankind by God, the eternal power and the divine nature that is plain to all Romans chapter 1, they hate. Because it points back to Christ. 
Even the light of conscience that God has placed in every man, woman, and child that testifies to what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, they hate. Because it points back to God, Romans chapter 2. And since Christ is the light of the world, no light apart from Christ, the light of the world, that is definite article, no other light, the natural man despises the light, which means the natural man in and of himself despises the only remedy for the deadly disease coursing through his veins. He despises Christ. And that's devastating. Beloved, I want you to hear these words. In the natural state, the problem is not that there is no light. The problem is that man loves his sin and he or she is not willing to give it up. I'm not interested in the remedy. I'm not interested in that remedy. Like once, an older man, after speaking to him for about half an hour about the Lord, he politely walked away from me. And the last words I remember him saying is this, thank you, Bernie, but I'm not interested in the Saviour. Beloved, if you don't get this point, evangelism will be completely deflating. Because no one seeks after God. No one. Romans chapter 3. Man is perfectly content with what the sinful world has to offer. Heading headlong, headlong into destruction at breakneck speed. And not fully aware in any way of the peril that he or she is in. Man loves their sin. That's the problem. Even though the pleasure of sin is fleeting, it's temporal. Hebrews chapter 11. They'll come to search out deviant dark ways to satisfy their lust. Because what used to once satisfy, they need to go darker and deeper to satisfy. And the law of, of diminishing returns means they just got it deeper and deeper and deeper. Because there's an insatiable lust for more and more and more sin. And that's where sin gets really deviant. Thus, the sexual revolution that we have in our world today. Man loves his sin. And a crucified saviour is so unappealing to the natural man, woman or child. The gospel is foolishness. Because they're dead to it. They're dead to the spiritual things of God. Give me more stuff. Increase my sensuality. Give, give me, feed my pride. Gain my popularity. Give me more power. Give me more wealth. Give me more status. I don't want less of those. I want more of those. Tell me about Christ. A Christ that will give me a better job. A Christ that will promote me. A Christ that will guarantee a better marriage. Christ that will guarantee my children do everything I want. A Christ that will give me prestige. Give me a Christ like that. A Christ that will give me better health. Give me a Christ that will increase my influence. And I'm in. Where do I sign up? Tell me that I've got to give these things up. No way. I love them. I want more of them, not less. The simple nature, beloved, is dark. It's very dark. All that to say that simply offering the remedy for sin, it won't cut it. 
Christ merely dying upon the cross, shedding his blood to provide an option to consider that one coat. Because the natural man will never desire what Christ has to offer. Ever. The true gospel, not the heresy of the health, wealth and prosperity that appeals to the lust of men, that appeals to the desires, the fallen desires of the sinful nature. It's a Christless gospel. The, the, the true gospel, beloved, is unappealing to the fallen man. If man is to be saved, there must be more than simply drawing. There must be more than bringing someone and simply saying, this is the gospel, this is the good news. There must be more than bringing someone into the church. You can drag your friends, your unsaved friends, and drag them into the church. They will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ that we preach from this pulpit week after week after week after week. I hope by the grace of God, faithfully. You can drag them in here and force them to listen. But he won't cut it. There's a deeper problem. It's spiritual. And it goes deeper than you and I have ever access to. Deeper than that person has access to. This is not a choice. This is beyond the choice. Beloved. Beloved. God must move. There must be a supernatural element that must occur for salvation to take place. And as I said earlier, if the Lord is drawing this salvific, it's unto salvation, which it is. And if he's drawing people to a crucified savior, then there must be an element in that drawing that the God of the universe moves to convince the heart. Because man will never be convinced in and of himself. And he does. I submit to you that the drawing that Jesus speaks of is nothing less than complete. And he's already taught on this in John chapter 6. You don't have to go there for the sake of time. But after feeding the 5,000 miraculously, so many people had been following after the Lord, 5,000 only men, could be 15, 20, 30,000 people. We don't really know. But there was a, a multitude that were following after Christ. And he fed them all miraculously with five loaves of bread and, and two loaves and two pieces of fish. And when, when they were fed, they were so enamored, so excited. He's feeding our belly. In this day, you and I might not be excited over a little bit of bread and fish. But in this day, you work 12-hour days to barely get enough to feed your family for that day. It's pretty exciting. That this Jesus can make food at will. And so on the eastern side of the, of the Galilee, of the river, of the, um, the sea of Galilee, that's where Jesus fed them. And then in the morning, he, he and the disciples had gone back over to the western side, a place called Capernaum. And the people, they wanted Jesus. They wanted to follow after him. I mean, why not? Wherever he goes, we get a free feed because I was so enamored by the bread he has given them to satisfy their bellies. They didn't understand. The mind didn't understand at this point the treasure of Christ is not that he can satisfy your physical needs, but rather that he is food for the soul. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. I am the eternal life. But they did not understand that point. They couldn't. Listen. They couldn't. They couldn't. And here's why. 
from verse 43, Jesus says, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Same word, draw. And I will raise him up on the last day. He is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Did you get the parallels in verse 44 and 45? might be difficult because the text is not before you, but let me give them to you. We got those words, come to me in both. Come to me both. The result is the same. 44 and 45, we have the same result. They come to me. They will come to me. They will come to me, Jesus is saying. And of course, no one comes to Christ without faith, but he's, he's drawing something a little bit more profound, I think. He's saying... No one, in verse 44, no one can come to me. That means man is unable to come. Unable. Unless he says the Father draws him. That word again, draws him. Okay? Father needs to draw in order for someone to come to Christ. Now remember, we're not talking physical because these multitudes are before the Lord. They're going over from this side to that side, wherever Jesus is. They're going to follow. So Jesus is not talking about a physical coming. He's talking about a spiritual coming. Remember, salvific. No one comes to me unless the Father draws. Now, here in John chapter 12, it is the Christ who draws, right? And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men or all people to myself. There, the Father is drawing. Here, Christ is drawing. If we continue in the gospel according to John, and in particular throughout the the epistles, we will find that it is the Spirit of God also who does the drawing. It is a triune God thing. Salvation is a triune God thing. Nothing short of the power of the triune God of the universe is required to save a single soul. What does draw mean? It must mean more than drag. We, we all agree, don't we? It must mean more than just drag the person to see Christ. Look, I'm going to force you. I don't want to see. Just look at him. No, it's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than that. It's more than physical. Because in verse 44, we're told the definition of drawing. We're told by the Lord. It is written in the prophets. And they will all, hear this, be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 45. Now, 44. No one comes unless the Father draws. And then Jesus says, you'll come if you're taught by the Father. So drawing that Jesus speaks of is to be taught by God. It's to learn from God. That's what it is. That's what Jesus is saying in these words. Uh, To be drawn by the Father is a synonym. To be taught by the Father. That's what he's saying. The dead, lifeless heart of a sinner who is dead in his or her transgression and their sin is revived by the Almighty God and taught the truth about Christ. That's how the Father, that's how the Son, that's how the Holy Spirit draws unto Jesus. In John chapter 6, the Father teaches the heart, the Father teaches the heart of a sinner that you need more than bread for your belly. You need the bread of life that is my Son. You need the bread of life that is my Son. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You need to believe, my son. Teach the sinner, the soul of the sinner, taught by God to believe, to look upon the son and to believe. 
The heart needs to be taught by the Father. The dead are raised to life when the Father teaches them. The ears are made open for the very first time. The eyes are made to see for the very, very, very first time. To recognize the rebellion within that they never recognized. And the absolute need of this Savior, this lifted up, crucified Lord, Jesus Christ. The violent drawing of the Father demolishes the sinful will, beloved. It breaks through unbelief. It pervades the darkness. It violently drags sinners into the light. Can you see the violence that's taking place? To see the pitiful state of a sinner and where he or she is. And now, in that state, he shows you Christ. In that state, he puts your face to see the Lord and Savior and the beauty and the splendor and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shows you the only one who can do anything about your rebellion and your sin and your depravity. He shows you Christ. The Father teaches the heart. Who his son is. It's only now that the sinner embraces Christ willfully, wholeheartedly, by faith, not kicking and screaming because the violence has been done. The triune God has already violently dragged them in to see, to open the eyes, and now the sinner says, Give me Jesus. Forgive me. You are the saviour of my soul. Forgive me. Forgive my transgressions. Forgive my sins. There is no one else in heaven or on earth or anywhere by other name. There's no other name by which man must be saved. But in the name of Jesus Christ. With that in mind, let's go back to John chapter 12 and I want us to see two important details that our Lord says in his words. I don't know where we are with time. My apologies if I've gone over. I don't have. I'm not too sure. But let's read those words again. Verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Love, there's two things I want to bring on the table with the words of our Lord. Will draw all people to myself. Firstly, let me ask you a question. To whom are all people drawn? That's a simple question, isn't it? It's a simple question, but I feel I need to say it. So foundational, so profound, and yet so simple. To whom are all people drawn? Let's read that verse again. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Sometimes you just got to push the brakes. And meditate on every word drawn to Christ. The sinner, the rebel, the depraved is drawn to the person of Jesus Christ. Not to an idea. Not to an abstract concept. The sinner is not drawn to a religion. Not drawn to an ideology, not drawn to a better life, not drawn to a faithful church. 
The true gospel and the power of the triune God is drawing people to the person of Jesus Christ. Our Christian faith is personal with a person, Christ. There's no other name under heaven by which one must be saved. He's the only saviour of the world. And I've said that before. But it's all about Christ, beloved. Christ must be central. Christ is everything. If you've believed in a gospel that has anything else as central, that's not the gospel. Apostle Paul would say that is a false gospel. Counterfeit. Even if you believed upon good things as central, that's not the gospel. Anything other than Jesus Christ being front and center is not the gospel and it's no longer good news. In fact, it is bad news. It's only good news if drawn unto the person of Jesus Christ. The appeal of the gospel is Christ. The beauty of the gospel is is Christ, the glory of the gospel, the treasure of the gospel, the delight of the gospel is who? It's Christ. That's why God is concerned to teach the heart about the Lord Jesus Christ. So that rebels and sinners who once were in enmity with God would now place their trust in Jesus. Now they would place their hope in Jesus. Now they would learn to rest in Jesus. Christian, how often, how often have you entered into the difficulties of life? And they are real. To find your soul troubled. And when you dig deep, you may even appeal to Scripture. You might find yourself searching for solutions, searching for practical ways, asking questions. But you may be searching for something that is devoid of Christ. You don't need the internet to find Christ. Christian, you don't need your Bible in your hand to find Christ. You don't need to speak to your pastor to find Christ. The relationship with Christ is intimate and it's personal. He calls his sheep by name, one at a time. The relationship with Jesus is real, and it's personal, and it's glorious. These other things we praise the, the Lord for. We thank him for the means of grace. We thank him for what he's given us. We thank him wholeheartedly. But let's go back to basics. Christ is everything. And if Christ is not enough, we need to wake up. Because the scripture and the testimony of scripture throughout is that Christ is enough. We can say that with our words. But we prove it with our lives. Is Christ enough? Is Christ our treasure? We've made it our goal as your pastors to only point you to Christ. Because we don't have the answers. 
we don't have the wisdom in and of ourselves. We don't have the solutions. Christ does. And so we appeal to Christ. We appeal to his word to help you any which way we can, according to what the Lord has given us. But beloved, if those words, Christ is enough, is truly embedded into your soul and you believe it wholeheartedly, it'll change your life. So we will only point you to Christ. That may be a level of frustration. Tell me what to do. Look to Jesus. Tell me what to do. Look to Jesus. We can talk practical, but until you look to Jesus, it means nothing. All the practical things that we can say to you. Sure, we can say things. Build parameters around your life. Let's do this with your wife or your husband. Do this with your work or your family. We can tell you all of these things. But they will fall flat on their face if Jesus is not front and center. It's fluff apart from that which is the substance of our faith, Jesus Christ. Calls people to himself. And we enjoy all the blessings through Jesus Christ, not apart from him. The second point I want us to see, the second point I want us to see, and it's critical to our understanding of these words from the Lord of our, from the mouth of our Lord some 2,000 years ago, is this. They were spoken in a context. They were spoken to an audience. And I've given you the context and I seem to do that every week. That they're there in Jerusalem. People are come to the Passover and they're enamored by the words of our Lord. And it's only a few days time before Jesus goes to the cross. Is that the cross that he accomplishes what he's saying here, remember? It is at the cross that those results take place that he speaks from verse 31 through 33. And we know although he's spoken to a context or to a people some 2,000 years ago, we know by the testimony of Scripture that the words of our Lord are just as applicable to us as it was to them, right? We agree on that. Let's take special notice of these words. It says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. We answered the question, to whom are all people drawn, right? To Christ. Yes and amen. But we just can't leave it there. Because Jesus is actually saying something more than that. Because right now in 2023, the Lord is not on that cross in Calvary. He's not hanging, bleeding and dying. He's not, he's not there at all. We know the rest of the story. He's Buried and then on the third day he rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is now interceding for the saints. So Jesus now has been coronated the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and he sits on the Father's throne and he's, he's ruling and reigning in his wonderful kingdom. But he's drawing people unto himself as the lifted up Saviour. As the crucified Savior, as the Savior who is hung upon the tree. He's not drawing people to a king on a throne, although he is that. But he's drawing people to a lifted up, crucified Savior. He draws them to a crucified Savior. He draws them to a Savior that is on the, on the cross. And we ask, ask the question, why? One word. Sin. Sin. 
Upon the cross, the world was judged. Upon the cross, the ruler of this world was cast out. And upon the cross, the sin of his people was decisively dealt with once and for all. Being taught by God about what Christ has done upon the cross is the entry point into the kingdom of God. You can't bypass the cross. If you're going to be drawn by the Savior, He's going to draw you to the cross because you have dealings with the God of the universe that cannot be dealt with apart from the cross, apart from a Savior who is lifted up upon the cross. You can't deal with God. You can't deal with your sin unless you approach it through the cross of Calvary where our Savior hung and died for the sake of His people. All the blessings, all the blessings of God have come through Jesus Christ, through the cross work of a crucified Savior. And it all starts with your sin and mine, Christian, being dealt with upon the cross. Not bypassing the cross. Bypass the cross and you have nothing. Nothing. Is Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father? Yes and amen. If you proclaim to anyone out there who does not know Christ, who is still in darkness, a man or a woman who is still depraved to the heart because they don't have Christ, they haven't placed their trust in Jesus. If you are preaching a gospel that is devoid of Christ, lifted up upon the cross, there is no gospel. There is no power. We don't point to a Christ simply who sits in heaven. We need to point them to the cross because at the cross, God deals with his people. It happens at the cross. It is the passageway into the kingdom of God. He has to go through the cross of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, brother, at brothers and sisters, at the cross, we see the righteous one who's hanging, who's bleeding upon the cross, who's torn to bits his flesh, whose face is marred beyond recognition. And it's at the cross where he bears the punishment On sin, of sin, but not punishment of his own sin, for he has never sinned. It is at the cross we see hung a substitute. Substitute for sin, for sinners. It's at the cross. It's at the cross that we see a substitute. I love that word, substitute. Meditate upon that word. Substitute. Say it over again, substitute. In my place. He draws people to himself, to a crucified Savior. The world will only see something so hideous. Don't romanticize the cross one bit. What took place on that day in Calvary's Hill was gruesome. It was hideous. It was horrific. Parents would have taken their kids and said, don't look. Parents would have puked because of the sight of a body so marred, so bloody. A face is hardly recognizable. What hung upon the cross was a sight that no one would want to see. Absolutely hideous. But those whose hearts have been taught by the Father, those whose hearts have been taught by the Son, Those whose hearts have been taught by the Spirit of God, if you've been drawn by the triune God, by the power of the God of the universe, you don't see hideous. You don't see horrific. 
You don't see gore and you don't see any of that. What you see is the most beautiful sight, the most glorious sight, the most magnificent sight. Because he hung upon that cross in my stead. He did it in my place. Beloved, he did it for you in your place. You and I deserve that. He doesn't deserve that. He draws people to the cross because you must see him that way. You must recognize your sin. You must recognize your offense against a good and holy God. And what he required for God to do to his own perfect righteous son. To put him upon the cross. To mar him in that way. To pour his judgment upon him. So that you wouldn't have to bear what you will never bear in a whole eternity. Because you offended a God who is infinitely offended at sin and unrighteousness. That's your treason and mine. They hung him upon the cross. He draws all people to himself. All people to himself as the resurrect, as the crucified saviour. As the one who's lifted up. Because you must see him in the eyes of faith as the one who hung and bled for you. Hung and bled for me. You must be humbled by this. In the eyes of faith, you must recognize this reality. Let's not take sin lightly. What we see upon the cross is a glorious sight. My sins, my sins and the legal demand of my sin were nailed to the cross because of the love. And the mercy and the grace of God in his son, Jesus Christ. What attracts a true believer to Christ is Christ. Who he is and what he has done for me.